Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact, in association with The Telegraph and Nat West. This week we've gone right back to grassroots rugby and we're live at Royston Rugby Club and I'm joined here by a rugby legend and World Cup winner, Will Greenwood. Is that um, too close? Too close? Even when I was on his team, I didn't want to be this close to him. <laughs> How are you, Will? I'm great, thanks. The usual trials and tribulations that we all have, but uh, all right, yeah. Right, we'll get into why we're here later, but the first two rounds of the NatWest Six Nations have gone. Uh, how do you see it at the moment? Uh, panning out reasonably predictably. Uh, you would say at the moment that uh, England and Ireland went into it as pre-tournament favourites. Ireland have a, a bookend sort of season where they bookend their season away games and in the middle they have a run of three at home. So once they got past uh, a performance in Paris, you sort of thought they would set sail towards St. Patrick's Day, uh, the day after the Cheltenham Gold Cup, and they would march up the M4 uh, on Twickenham with the hope of a, a Grand Slam, which I think last time was 2009. England, um, you're just not sure who's going to beat them at the moment. Uh, even when they play below par or below the high standards they set themselves, they still find a way to win. Um, Scotland uh, produced 40 minutes of rugby against France that replicated their strong performance in the autumn. Italy, chuffed that they've discovered a couple of kids, Minozzi at 15, Boney at 13, Negri on the flank uh, and Jamiroli who played in the first game, which means Connor's academy and his development of young players are coming through. I think France could count themselves remarkably unlucky to have played two, lost two. Really? And I think they are getting to a situation oh, where, um, <laughs> where actually they're starting to get fit and starting to be quite useful. And I think it's quite important for them because you want more strong teams in Northern Hemisphere if we're going to break that cycle of Southern Hemisphere winning the World Cups. And I mustn't exclude my pals from Wales who were quite brilliant... Uh, against Scotland. I mean, absolutely outstanding with some of the quality of their play. It does help if no-one tackles you, though, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, their movement off the ball, um, their handling, I thought they're... I think they've got the best handling pack in the Six Nations. Uh, Corey Hill looked like he was a Harlem Globetrotter at one stage. Alan Wynne-Jones is very comfortable on the ball. 
both their props. Samson's Lee less so, but Rob Evans at one is a proper rugby player. Ken Owens has always had a go at touch. Navidi is a natural. Shingler's world class. And uh, Moriarty gives them some ballast. So um, I I've really enjoyed their performances and they will be frustrated that they went away from Twickenham uh, with a loss uh, and now head to Dublin and need to get back on the winning trail. Otherwise, suddenly all those that wonderful start will be for now if they're 1-1, uh, lost 2. I tell you what's interesting. 24 out of 25 games England have won. They've just beaten Wales, so they're still on course for an unprecedented third Six Nations title. Yep. And yet the question that was most often asked is, how good are they? Are they any, you know... Oh, they've done all this, but they haven't played New Zealand, so you can't have that yardstick. Are they all that? I mean, one of the journals this weekend was putting forward the proposition that actually they peaked, they're on the way down, other teams are going to overtake them. Yeah, Nobody. I mean, look, I mean, my view on it would be if you had a World Super League right now, you'd have uh, New Zealand, England and Ireland in there. You'd probably have Wales knocking on the door. Um, South Africa... Uh, you're just not quite sure what's happening. I think they've got something like 400 players playing 480. abroad. 480 players playing abroad. The amazing thing about them in World Cups is they drag them all back six months before. They put out these absolute, I, I think the correct word might be mutant, uh, <laughs> in terms of six foot four, six foot five, 19 stone, and all, can run the under in about 11 seconds and are frighteningly physical. And when World Cups come around and the oxygen gets a little thin, I don't mean in terms of playing altitude, I mean in terms of the pressure and the size and the enormity of the game, then their very simple game plan tends to find themselves right at the back end uh, of the knockout stages. Scotland need to have uh, a consistent year of top-end results for them to be considered back at the top table. But the signs are very, very promising. Um, they have a, a backline that uh, that can do some real damage, and a, a, a player I think is absolutely top class in John Barkley, who leads the pack yeah. extremely well, alongside young Johnny Gray and these sorts of characters. One of the things about England and the reason why, when you touched on this, they're able to win games when they don't play particularly well, yeah. is that their decision makers, uh, Ford and Farrell especially, have now got significant numbers of caps. Yeah, and. Winning becomes a habit. Not panicking under pressure comes from experience. They've got that. And you contrast the games that, say, Wales have lost, especially against Southern Hemisphere teams, narrowly, where they should really have won. That's because they haven't got into that habit yet. And England's decision-makers make the right decisions more often. Yeah, I would go along with that, I think, in terms of the World Cup in 2015 for those young men. It was almost a year too soon. Um, they found themselves in that situation with 15 minutes to go against Wales, 10 points up, uh, and they managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, as Wales had been through their tough times in the 2007 World Cup, which allowed them to go so well um, in New Zealand. I think there is the lynch. I also think if you break the game of rugby down into sort of five or six areas, if you think about uh, scrums, line-out, restart, uh, attack, defence, counter-attack, if I just pluck six off the top of my head, um, then England are pretty good at all of them. So it means that uh, if you hit seven and eight out of ten on three or four of them, but you're hitting nines on a couple, you can talk far more articulately about the, the, the power of the set piece, but their line-out looks absolutely top draw. Maul's strong, the scrum's pretty rock solid. Uh, their aerial control of the backfield um, wins your games. The ball doesn't bounce on the turf in awkward directions because... 
um, Mike Brown tends to be underneath it. Two or three areas, I think, for England that they still need to sort out. And obviously, the, the, we haven't had a centre combination that's been settled since you and Mike Tindall were there. And that's, you know, a, a fair few internationals ago. We've had, how many, say, I think, 23 different combinations. Yeah. I mean, I think... Since then, you've still got, that, you've got the back three. Got uh, the back three and the balance of the back row. Yeah. Uh, look, I think Farrell and Joseph... I've, I've always been a big fan of Joseph. Um, his um, exclusion... Uh, during that World Cup, I mean, I know it was, I think, injury-based. I thought Lancaster had found the key to uh, an attacking threat when they went to Cardiff in the Six Nations of 2015 and they had Jamie Roberts and Jonathan Davies and Joseph just pulled them whichever way he wanted to go. Not quite kicked on in terms of uh, his consistency at the highest level, but he scores tries in big games. He's a big influence. He was huge when they won 3-0 down in Australia. And I love the balance he gives in terms of what people you hear commentators talk about. He stretched the field. And the reason we then make inroads in and around the fringes. So I, uh, I like Joseph. I understand why he's gone for Tio. I understand the power. But my personal preference, perhaps longer in the tooth and older, and I'm looking back to bygone eras when defences weren't quite so tight. I'd have Joseph in there. Well, the way, they, the way that it's configured now, it's a squad game. If you have the option of a power yeah. thing, that's fine. Uh, and a couple of technical things. One still in the uh, ball carrying forwards, still for me, need to have more carriers in space, giving defenders more questions rather than one out runners straight into contact. I mean, I and think international you, defenders now, you you know, you you're going to struggle to have go forward ball. I, I, th I think you've hit on uh, a point that, and the reason why Nathan Hughes, after so long, is most likely to reappear very quickly in a Test match. Um, if you take Vunipola or Billy Vunipola out and Nathan Hughes out, then you go through that pack that started against Wales and you would say there are two ball handlers, two world-class ball handlers in that pack, Marco Vunipola and Joe Launchbury. Uh, other than that, you have lads, Dylan Hartley, Dan Cole, happy to truck up but not comfortable in and around traffic at ball in hand. Uh, Laws and Itoje, again, Itoje developing. Laws getting better with his hands, but... Their, their, their first option would be, I'm going to go over you, rather than use that subtlety. Simmons is new. Rob Shaw is a, is, is a link man, but has never had the natural footballing ability of a Billy Vunipola. So if you go into a, a test match with only two guys who can go right to the line, and they've got three real options, they can either carry it themselves, they can tip it onto the forward running short off them, or if they can pull it back to forward in space behind uh, and do it in a way that actually all three options are still available as the defenders approach, then there's only two lads who can do that. If you only have two lads there, I think it allows you to pressure much harder defensively in around the fringes and put pressure on England. So, uh, hence the reason that uh, Hughes and Vunipola are both pretty critical to England in Tokyo. And the second thing, and this is absolutely crucial, and it's a fault which has bedeviled them for several seasons now, is giving too many penalties away. Now, everyone gives penalties away under pressure, understand that, taking one for the team, whatever the horrible phrase is when you're yeah. uh, in the red zone and you're defending, I understand that. But the needless, mindless penalties between the 10-metre lines, which either stop momentum when you're going forward yeah. or give goalkeeping opportunities, if you have a penalty count that's in double figures yeah. in a close game, you'll probably lose. Yeah, the, the, the rules we always played by was... 
If you concede uh, 10 penalties in a game, then you uh, insert the word luck into the equation, i.e. you're relying on a little bit of it to make sure you get across the line. And the one thing you don't want to go into big games is, is relying on luck. You've got to remove that element of doubt and luck. Now, since 15 years ago, since we I finished sort of playing in that great Martin Johnson team, the ball in play has increased by 10, 15%. So in reality, it's now not 10 penalties. It's probably 12 to 13 is the benchmark that if you cross that threshold, you are just chancing your arm a little bit in terms of hoping you get out of dodge uh, with a W in the win column. Um, and, and they're on that. They're on that mark. I don't. I don't see England uh, as a team that needlessly gives mindless penalties. But I don't see them as ill-disciplined. Is it indisciplined or ill-disciplined? Uh, either, actually. Okay, I don't see them. And as both an, apply. I don't see them as an ill-disciplined team. No, you know, you don't. You don't see them like um, Valmahino gave five away on his own. Yeah. You know, for France, but. When you look back at the game, the penalty count is there. Yeah. And you go back and look at where the momentum was checked and so on. And the th things are obvious there. I just wonder, because I've been discussing this as a problem, how do you actually deal with it? Short of saying you'll get fined, you won't get picked. Do you have to have those sort of measures? Know, or? Uh, yeah, look, I, I think it comes down to, and I think this team have got it, the self-policing element of the senior players demanding that uh, that, did, that doesn't happen. I, I seem to remember uh, Jason Leonard tells a great story uh, from about 2000, uh, and I think we'd lost another Grand Slam. And uh, Clive Woodward had called his senior players in, of, of Delalio, Johnson and Leonard, and said, lads, we gave away 15 penalties on the weekend. Here's the tape. Uh, I need you to go through it with the lads. Well, funnily enough, the meeting never took place because they worked out that they'd given 14 of them away. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I think you have to have that understanding. I, I do think that discipline is creating that. I think there's such fast pace. I'm certainly not no drumbeat. I'm not trying to make excuses for it. I, I don't see discipline as much of an issue as you do necessarily with this England team at the moment. Well, let's just take the Wales game, for example. Wales are under pressure for most of the first half. Yeah. And England were under pressure for the majority of the second half. That's yeah. the way it went. Penalty count, 10-2. Yeah. They were, they were under the caution. They were the second-best team for that passage of play. And when you're the second... I would imagine... I mean, I don't know the stat. I haven't got down. Italy have probably given... No, but the point I'm making is well. Wales under pressure for whole, the whole of the first half in the whole of the game. Only gave two penalties away. Yeah. So, um, strong stats. Strong stats. But uh, the, the, name me one that was mindless. Well, I mean, that's, um, do you know what I'm saying? They're, yeah, no, I understand what you're saying about mindless. And the, by that... You and England be... played and were happy to kick a lot and give up Wales the ball, therefore defending a fraction more in terms of time. Again, 10-2 is a bad skew, but my overriding... It doesn't have to be mindless. Or... It, it, it's as simple as not staying, you know, the right side of the pillars so you're going in the side yeah. when you know actually you shouldn't do that. Mm. Lifting legs up in driving malls and, and that, sort of, that sort of thing. Those are the things which are... The, the unthinking, yeah, you know, and experienced players, good players, shouldn't you know, shouldn't be doing that. So that's a, that's one point. Yep. Let's let's move on to um, the games coming up. Uh, France, Italy, in Marseille, isn't it? Friday night. Yeah, they might both lose. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, France. So France. Okay, you've got to take out your historical dislike. I'm not going to use their hatred word. 
Go and remove your historical uh, thoughts about France. Why? Because it isn't 91, 92, <laughs> when they were horrible people and you had to wear a box when you went out and played. Um, times have moved on. I remember Gareth Archer, um, where well, it was the A-team on a Friday, the old, in the old days, I think they're called England Saxons now. The A-team would sort of replicate the Six Nations as the tournament went through. Fantastic development team to play in. Well, we played at Stade Jean Bois, yeah. And um, it was a heck of a game. I mean, Dave Sims and all sorts of reprobates were playing on the England team. Uh, and it was one of the... I was skipper. It was one of the... I mean, it was just a brawl from minute one to minute 80. And the, a high ball went up on Tim Stimson. And um, it came down. And the, a mall formed around him. I heard this squeal that reminded me of the deliverance. Um, sort of that horrible moment where you know something bad is happening uh, and you don't really want to know what it is. And he comes out and he goes... They used to call me Shaggy, the cartoon character. And they go, he goes, Shaggy, Shaggy, my eyes. Those French so-and-sos have, have had a go at my eyes. You could see scratches all over his eyes. So I'm legging it over to the ref. And as I get halfway towards the ref, Gareth Archer grabs me by the hand and he goes, Shaggy, I think there might have been a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> <laughs> I, he grabbed a blue arm and he... Fought. So it was uh, those days... Uh, can, you um, see, can you see Italy... I mean, so I think score... France are a much better team even though they've only got, they've got two points on the board. I think Camara uh, in the back row is absolutely outstanding. Guirado made 30 tackles against Ireland and must think... I know you're going to say he gave a couple of penalties, right? Ittoria, now I know he can't play this week because he was involved in whatever has allegedly taken place in Scotland, which we clearly can't comment on because I've got no idea what <laughs> did happen. But he is developing into a top-class second row, can really handle... And out in the back line, clearly Thomas can finish, but Vakatawa is an absolute monster. And the midfield combo, he can choose two from three. You've got to have Dumaru in there from La Rochelle, who's sensational. Then you can either pick Lamarat from Cast or uh, Chamoncy from Racing 92. They're developing into a, a really good... And the most important thing is they're getting fitter, uh, which well, gives I mean, them yeah, opportunities are, to it play. It is amazing that in the professional era, they are not as fit as they should be. The one, I mean, one of the things you can control, subject to injury, yeah. is your fitness. Yeah. Most of the things you can't control, that's just not acceptable. It's, just it's a reflection of the up. top 14 as well, the way they play. Yeah, correct. Italy, two tries against England, three tries um, against Ireland. Yeah. So, you know, they are able to put the ball yeah. down over the line, which is actually something they've not been able to do uh, with regularity Prior to this, so, so close to a bonus point against Ireland when mm. uh, Benvenuti, I think, was it Benvenuti up the right hand side? Uh, no, they're away. The drink, Bellini it was Bellini, wasn't it? It was yeah. Bellini, the right wing. All... You, do, you can have a Bellini, can't you? Yeah, Peach, my missus Peach, likes yeah. a Bellini. Yeah. They're they're away. Um, can you see them pulling a result off against France? Uh, no, uh, I can't. I think their only I think their only chance and uh, is at home to Scotland. I, I just don't see them winning on the road. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think. Ireland will look back. I, I, I look back if they do get to Twickenham unbeaten, and they'll look back and go, you know what? That that France result was a half decent result in Paris. I think Paris is going to go back to being a place where it's very very difficult to win. Okay. I think I think that's England's biggest challenge uh, this year because the way the results, the the the. the the fixtures have fallen. England are now away to Scotland and away to France and then home to Ireland. I think Ireland with two home games, uh, if both of them were to lose one, the Six Nations will head to Ireland because of point. I think France for England is uh, a really, really tough fixture. Well, let's go on to 
Ireland, Wales. Arguably, Wales could probably should have recorded a victory at yeah. Twickenham with the amount of ball they had, with the number of clean breaks they had. Uh, didn't finish them, blame the referee, uh, which is never a good thing in my opinion. Yeah. And although Ireland play particularly well in Dublin, it is a difficult place to play now. Yeah. Wales have got the players to win there, but they'll have to play well. They'll have to play outstandingly well. Um, Schmidt's side are very well organised. Uh, they're going back to running those clever plays in and around the fringes that he was was so reminiscent of his days coaching when he was at Leinster and they were winning all those European Cups. They hit up the middle, the scrum half comes back to the short side, he uses their hook as their props to handle Carney, goes straight through the middle. They've got that talent, uh, Lama, who will now play an increasing role since Robbie Henshaw, felt for Robbie Henshaw. Uh, injury on the Lions tour, uh, injured again, absolutely top class. I think that will be Ireland's biggest problem, is replacing Henshaw. Earls will probably move into the 13 channel. Uh, he does that a lot for Munster. Um, I still think they're vulnerable in their back three defence. Stockdale, he's a big lad, but I think Wales's attacking threat can can get to him. Um, you just feel that like Wales succumb to the sort of defensive organisation and press at times of the England power, I think that's their challenge again. There's the sort of team, they're a bit like watching Newcastle under Kevin Keegan. Um in terms of the way they're, they're, they're so keen to it. It's like, are we talking about the same Wales we were talking about two years ago when it was just straight down the middle, around the corner, around the middle corner, all the way to touchline, come back? Um, you can argue, is there a, an element of luck about this in terms of development for Wales? Would Warren Gatland have picked all these players if his usual triumvirate back row of Warburton... Probably Lillian, not, but, that, that, but that, sort of, that sort of serendipity is, is yes. what uh, you have to take advantage Correct. of. Correct. And then... And the problem um, he's got now is, well, it's a good problem, fit. when they're all fit, is what, who do you pick and what of it? But it's a better problem to have yeah. than, than previously. Um, Hadley Park, Steph Evans, fantastic Had, finish. Hadley Park sounds like a tube station, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, Clapham Common, Kensington Hadley Park. South, Hadley Park. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Calcutta Cup. Um, nearly every side, uh, England yeah. side, at some point has come uh, a cropper yeah. against Scotland. Can you see it this time? I, I don't think I can, actually. But. Uh, I, I, if you asked me right on the end of the final whistle after the Australia game, I thought, wow. And then if you asked me 20 minutes, well, half-time against France, never mind, uh, full-time, I just thought they're not good enough to beat England. Uh, that's, that says if you're... Playing them 100 times, who will win more times? England. But what you're referring to is, as you said, 1990. For you guys, 2000. For our guys, uh, you walk into a storm every now and again at Murrayfield and they have that confidence and self-belief of that victory. Um, I expect they'd have to go with Laidlaw and Russell at 10 with the option to move Laidlaw to 10 later on. I think if they're going to beat England, he's, Gregor Towns is going to back his, his ex-Warrior player before he stepped up. He's going to go with that midfield combo, uh, Russell and Horn. He, he's desperate to get Dunbar back. I think Horn did a great job in terms of straightening it. He's desperate to get him back. Um, they're going to have to attack. They're going to have to score four tries. Uh, and to do that, you've got to really have Russell out there. But it's, it's, uh, One it, the Finn Russell needed you against France. Because I'll tell you why he needed you. He needed a player like you uh, when he was going for another touch kick from a penalty 
and thought, if I do it quick, I'll get extra points for it. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to, it was like watching Kevin Costner in Tin Cup. Uh, go on, he hit that three wood over the water. Or Jean van der Velt in the open. You don't need to win the open with a four. You're going to win it with a six, just don't bloody take seven. Uh, and what he did at key moments, uh, he rushed it and missed touch. And with it, his tempo, his confidence just went a little bit. But I would still back him because his ability to pick a pass and Hugh Jones can run those angles and we know Stuart Hogg can beat sort of five men in a post box. Um, he can still put those guys on the end of a ball that can do damage to England. And hence, I suspect that Russell will play at 10. The problem for Scotland, for me, is this. They are good when the game is loose, when space is available, when kicks are bad. They need the game to be like that because they've got a very significant attacking threat, especially in the back three. Yeah. And yet, the majority, certainly of Six Nations rugby, you don't, that doesn't always win. You know, the no. tactical, one of the reasons England keep winning is they make the right tactical decisions, they kick in the right areas, they yeah. keep the game in the right territory. So you've got a sort of a, a dual yeah. com a combination which doesn't fit very well. And the latter is not what they favour and they're not as good as England at that. Yeah, look, I, I mean, England will want the game buried, though. Uh, they, the last 10 minutes against Wales was quite nervy. England want the game buried. They don't want to be at Murrayfield. And it's a seven point, less than a seven-point game because Scotland keep rolling the dice. You play Texas Hold'em. Eventually, the river card will flop around. It'll be an ace uh, and it'll happen. And it'll, they'll, they'll win it against England. Um, Bergen played 80 minutes at tight head. Um, and that's where they're desperate for Fagerson and WP Nell. They're back in training. I don't think they'll get straight back into the side. Well, they did OK against they, France, and they? France are powerful yeah. from five. I thought they would, I thought they would struggle, but they, they, you know, they hung on in there, which is, is good for them. Um, France blew that game, though. Well, they, we can, they blew that game. They blew the Island game. Correct, and that's why I'm saying France have got so little confidence. I think it's eight losses on the trot. Gerardo must wonder what he has to do to skip for a winning team. He must, uh, but they start at least the previous six or seven, they were never in them. At least in these last two, they're getting close. And I think it only takes one of those wins for that team to get across the line. The, the, the only thing that makes you shouldn't joke about it, I often think, is, does Jack Brunel have any emotion? I mean, you commentate on these games. Have you ever seen anything other than a sort of waxwork model? Completely. You know, I've never thought about it to be honest. Um, no, I've just wanted him sometime to jump up and support. <laughs> his... If you're a player, right? I mean, you don't have to be like Stuart Pearce or Martin O'Neill, but if you're a player, uh, and we're all kids still. I mean, we're even on international level. We still like to have our mum and dad go, "Well done, son." Uh, and international level, your coach is your dad, uh, and they're the ones who every now and again you just want, just give me something. Jack, just let me know that what I've just done meets with your approval just once in 80 minutes. But you know what, I'm a soppy old sod. Well, that's an interesting philosophy. Um, uh, <coughs> that proves you're back, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> forwards, if you don't say anything, that's good enough. That's yeah. fine. Just yeah. don't, you know, don't give me another rollicking, you know. Yeah. Time now to move on to the women's game. And I'm yeah. really pleased to say we've got Hannah Gallagher to go through the women's Six Nations, England and South Flanker, first team coach. Uh, originally cites Maggie Alfonsi as her hero and Johnny Wilkinson as an inspiration. 
Hannah, um, your career began at what age? When I was seven. In, in minis? Mixed? Yeah, so I played um, at minis level, so I was the only girl with all the boys until I was 12. Um, and then apparently girls can't play with boys anymore. I hear. So then I went, um, uh, allegedly, yeah, no. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, went on to um, play for a different club um, that was better with women's rugby. And then where, were, where were these clubs? Um, so I started off at Bishop Stortford um, and then went to Wellin when I was, so 12, 13. And then when I was 17, going on to 18, went to Saracens to play in the Prem. And the biggest challenge for the women's game and certainly the girls' game is at the moment you come out at 11 because the physical difference start to become possibly dangerous and then you've got under 13s, under 15s and if you don't make that, you know, year on year, as soon as the women's game gets every year group available, then you'll have more teams for girls to go into. They won't drop out. My eldest uh, daughter just stopped because she finished at 11 and the next was 13 and, and so on. So that's a, that's a big thing. But the... Um, the Tyrrells um, Premier 15s, how have you seen that, the investment that it, uh, the RFU have put into the women's game? Yeah, definitely. It seems a lot more professional now. Um, so the setup's better and people are paying to watch matches. Um, we've got a lot more staff, especially at Saracens. So you've got doctors, quite a few physios. We have strength and conditioning coaches now and things like that. So it's a far more professional setup that's very similar to England. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot more professional and the teams, like, the matches are a lot closer. It's not like when I started, Saracens were top and then you'd go and you know you knew you'd win the league and that you'd smash every team and things like that. Now it's a lot closer and people are being quite strategic where they're moving and things like that. And you, the medical facilities you're talking about, you told me you've been injured for two years. Two years, yeah. I'm doing a great job. Um, yeah, so um, two years ago, just before the Six Nations, I ruptured my ACL. And then nine months in, so when I was just about ready to play again, um, I re-ruptured it. So that was just before the World Cup. How do you maintain, you know, mentally the, uh, the, will, to, the will to carry on? I, mean... I laughed when I did it the second time. Because you're like, oh, as if, as if this has happened again. Um, it's incredibly difficult. Um, I've just been very focused. Luckily, like, as my England coaches will always joke, and my Saris coaches, that like, I love the gym. So I was always happy. I'm like, oh, it's fine, I'll just go and do legs and just build up my legs that way. Um, but I always wanted to, to play in the World Cup, so I was gutted to miss out on the World Cup, gutted for the girls that they didn't, um, didn't win in the final. Uh, but my next focus is just to get back on that pitch and then go to the next World Cup in three years if I'm not too old. Well, England, the top of the uh, table in the Women's Six Nations, they've got two big tests coming up, France uh, and Ireland. Now, it's funny because the French are powerful, the Irish have dropped off slightly from, from where they were. Do you see them... Can you see them doing the whole sweep, the Grand Slam? Yeah, 100%. I would be shocked if they didn't get Even the without slam. the players who are on seventh contract? Yeah, I mean, after the World Cup, which is obviously a big, big upset, um, how we played against Canada... Um, I mean, it, it wasn't the strongest Canada team in that autumn series, but did very well there. And I think England have just got a very good balance at the moment, so... We've got the experience, we've got quite like two, three players with over 100 caps in key positions and then we're bleeding in the young ones in less key positions and getting them capped and that's what we did very well um, leading into the World Cup that we won is I got capped when I was 19, same with uh, players like Alex Matthews, like lots of us were getting capped at 18, 19 and played two, three years 
getting bled just before the World Cup. So I think it's a very good way of doing it, similar to what the men are doing, playing them now, leading into the next three years of the World Cup. What do you think of the decision to switch the focus um, after the World Cup? Then you go on to the seventh cycle and they're both not funded you know, to the fullest extent. And yet England, they are, if you put more money into the women's game than any other union, so you've got to give them credit for that. And yet you've got that dichotomy between switching focus from one to the other. Do you think that's right or would you prefer... Well, obviously, I think... Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? No, exactly. Um, yeah, obviously, you'd rather have the money like in both sports because if we had it in the 15s, then we would just be better and better and countries wouldn't be able to deal with us. I mean, we're doing very well at the moment, but being fully funded makes life a lot easier. All the players, including myself when I was playing, um, you still got full-time jobs. You're going to full-time jobs and then you're going to club training in the evening, so you're getting up at 5am and then you're getting home about half, 10, 11. So it is, it is very difficult. And, I mean, I understand with the Commonwealth and Olympics and things like that, that's got to be a focus. And they are putting in the money for the Premiership, which is developing players and making... Well, let's get this better. right. A year's professional contract is about an England player's match fee, actually. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not talking, <laughs> you know, about several million pounds, are we? But, I mean, when I started playing, um, our, like, we, I remember we played um, in the autumn series against New Zealand and we won and that was a big thing we hadn't won all three games and we all got a hoodie and like the excitement when we got in the change was like we well, have given us a hoodie oh this is amazing we um, love everyone no matter how old you get everyone still likes a piece of yeah. stuff <laughs> we weren't allowed to wear hoodies originally we had to wear you know the fleeces yeah. which were like oh like granddad fleeces these purple tracksuits I mean they were oh, they, they were uh, iconic you walk around like the Gilbert ones <laughs> the Gilbert ones I never realised that the Scots hated those I don't know why. Right. They just said they were detestable. I mean, but there's a sort of element of nastiness of the colour which would just stand you out imperial being a little bit pompous. Really? Just no, we weren't, it is just purple. I went to Durham, that's platinum. We called it platinum. But there is that colour about look at you like a Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. <laughs> wandering around. And that, you know, it never occurred to me. If I'd have known it annoyed him that much, You'd I'd have worn it more often. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Uh, the question I had potentially, and, and you might go... Uh, conspiracy theory here. In terms of the sevens and sending some of the backs over to play a little bit more sevens or the flyers, is there a potential concern not just to win the medals but actually to, to improve your top players in order to take on the, or the, the Ferns back line, which notorious has been always perhaps the Achilles heel to England in the big games? Yeah, I mean, especially when, when the sevens was obviously professional and then it was the year of the World Cup. Um, so the sevens girls, people like Amy Scarrett and Mo Hunt and people like that came back across. It does lift your backs, especially when they're in real key positions. Um, so that does make a big difference. And it's really good then to also have the youngsters because they can help progress them on. It's how the men in New Zealand developed their backline years and years ago. They'd send them to Hong Kong in the sevens. Christian Cullen was discovered there. Jonah Lomu was a yeah. sevens player. And so in terms of the stage, the evolution of where the women's game is, it might be actually and not just a sort of chase for medals, actually a tactical awareness of how they could also improve the individuals, which then will get dropped back into the 15s at a later stage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hannah, uh, can I wish you all the best? Thank you. When, when you, you've got a return date, haven't you? I have. I mean, I've had a return date oh. for years. <laughs> it keeps changing. At the moment, and I hope to be back playing um, in the Premiership in September. Well, That's the best the of luck. Thank you very much, Thank Hannah. You. <clears throat> What was your longest injury? Um, well, I was really lucky. Um, 
And in the amateur days, just that at Nottingham, we had uh, a chairman who was a general surgeon at Queen's Med, which is teaching hospital. I had a brilliant physio. So I never had anything that kept me out for a long time. But I remember I, it was two weeks, we had a break. We had two weeks before um, the Island game in uh, 89, that was a Lions year. Yeah. And, I, and I got to work on the Monday, uh, I was a lawyer, and I found I couldn't lift my right arm, arm up. I just I couldn't even get on the desk. Um, neck pain, I thought I'd done, I trapped a nerve. Yeah. Um, and I went to the physio, he freed it, and I went there. And the same, Not Kevin Murphy. No, 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 the same, same season. I was walking down to the gym and my knee gave way. And I thought, oh. And it was, How I, old were you? Was, no, no, <laughs> well, I'm not, not as bad as I am now. But, and um, I thought, please don't let this you know, be a cartilage injury or whatever. In those days, no keyhole surgery. Yeah. Went to the uh, uh, knee specialist, uh, Mr Forster, at uh, one of the top men in the country at Nottingham. He said, well, sorry, it looks like a cartilage. It's a big thing. It's, and I was thinking, oh, it's six weeks. I'm going to be out. Won't be playing the Five Nations. Won't go on the Lions tour. I was literally gowned up, ready to have the injection, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And he came down and he, on his rounds and he said, how does it feel? I said, well, you know what? I know it's strange, but it feels a bit better today. He said, well, this is a major op. You've only been on the anti-inflammatories, very high dose for about 48 hours. Let's give it another 48 hours, see how you seem. I then went up to my physio in Mappley. Um, he said, I know what this is. He said, you've got a, a, a tendon that goes across there. He said, and sometimes it gets tight and it goes in the joint. And it feels like a look. And he just twisted my foot about wow, 20, 30 times. Miyagi. Yeah. And I was fine. He said, if it ever happens again, this is what you do. So I was but for two very good medical specialists. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't have played in the Five Nations. I wouldn't have played wow. in the 89 Lions. And, and those are the breaks that when you talk about luck, those are the things that, uh, yeah. that you have. We're here, actually, to talk about NatWest's involvement with Rugby Force. And, your involvement with this club? I think you're a, a well, non-exec committee member. No, it was a couple of years ago, and uh, we had a great time with, with the guys and girls up here. I did, uh, my age, three training sessions involved in some fundraising efforts, and uh, what was amazing to turn up tonight, uh, and you uh, pulled into the car park and saw these magnificent floodlights, which I think, uh, hopefully, we'll hear very shortly, has sort of transformed the ability of this club to attract numbers, to attract minis, to attract girls, to get down uh, and train far more frequently. Because when I literally came here, I thought it was like being back at university in the 80s when they wheeled out these sort of diesel floodlights. <laughs> uh, and training started 25 minutes late because... Are those your university memories? Well, d d training in front of car headlights, in terms of rugby, yeah. They're not I, mine. I don't have... Uh, <laughs> um, so... It was great. It was old school. And it reminded me, I think, you know, there's always a danger. You might say, no, I've never moved away. I've always been... There's a danger when you're involved in professional rugby for, for a long time and you're involved in broadcasting the very highest calibre games and you're at Stade de France, you're at Twickenham. The, the Wi-Fi's amazing, the pre-match food. It's unbelievable travel. You just lose a little bit of a sight of, like Hannah started... Uh, a junior rugby club at well, and you lose sight of where you came from. You also now, lose the fact that you are, I don't know, probably 0.5% of the game. Yeah. And that, you know, the rugby grassroots is actually where the vast majority of people play, 
enjoy, watch, socialise. Uh, and if you didn't have that and that's not healthy, you won't get the pool of talent that yeah. comes through and gets developed Preston later Preston Grasshopper was, was, was mine uh, as a young kid and now still heavily involved in my local junior side, uh, Maidenhead. Little Rocco was out on the under-9s on Sunday morning. First team, we got a bit of a battering from Newbury uh, on Saturday afternoon, but uh, we will be back in training next couple of days. We're away at Ivy Bridge. Uh, and um, there's, it's a really, really thriving club. And um, clearly all eyes are on the Six Nations and we're worried about when Billy Vunipola is coming back in terms of the chat in the pubs. But the reality for most clubs is have we got enough money to buy a couple of tackle pads so we can do some contact work? Have we got, has, has anyone put 10p in the Alecky meter? And the rugby, four, the rugby force initiative, is it just for facilities or...? It was a combination of things and you could be used... I, I, I think uh, certainly Tom Shanklin uh, was involved in terms of a Welsh club and Ali Kellock in a Scottish club. Uh, literally, the, the, I, I met Jamie, Jamie Green, who I think we're going to talk to shortly. I, I, I rolled up here in a car and we said, right, what can we do? How can we help? He said, well, let's start with a training session. We did a training session. What have we got coming up where we can stick a few quid in the pot? We're right, we've got a dinner. Will you come and bring a couple of items to, to the dinner? So I then walk around and try and find their Roman Abramovich. Um, <laughs> I think he was in waste management. I've forgotten his name. And then I sort of pickpocketed him with my tongue for most of the evening. And uh, he donated a, a hugely generous sums of money. I think the first team captain presented flowers naked at one stage, uh, at the bar, in a classic juke. So we didn't lose sight of the junior rugby club ethic. Um, no, no, that's more like my university. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, and so it was with a, you know, a sense of great pride to come back tonight and, and, and well, see hundreds of people here uh, and hear the story of how many children and people are now involved. Because the big challenge, I was chatting to a, a slightly older gentleman, uh, who said when he was here, they used to have six teams. And every club under the country is the same. And I call it, you know, what's a tree has, what are these, the rings called? Concentric rings, rings. in a tree, which an age a tree. And I, I talk about rugby clubs in terms of the chalk line. In the old days, everyone had a ball which had six teams on, and the chalk line was all the way to the bottom. And as professionals have been taken over, the chalk line has slowly moved up the board, and the bottom end never gets touched now. And the great challenge for us... Uh, in terms of people who can trumpet the game and for the RFU at the highest end to throw funds back into it and sponsors like NatWest to come in and support these junior clubs is the great challenge is to move the chalk line back down the board when there's a race for eyeballs from so many different sports and with that maintain the bottom of the pyramid as enormous because otherwise the next George Ford, Owen Farrell just might be there but may come once uh, every fourth summer. Instead of at the moment, we see England seem to be producing kids who can play international rugby at the age of 17. Well, let's talk to two people who are at the sharp end of the, the grassroots game. As I say, they're more representative of the rugby audience in general than any of the uh, Premiership players or fans or broadcasters or journalists. Can I welcome to the stage Mick Clark, who is the Sponsorship and Development Director here, and Jamie Green, who is the Minis Coach. Why did you ask NatWest Rugby Force to get involved with the club? 
I think Rugby Force for us was an opportunity not just to actually get the changing rooms painted or, or sort the plumbing, which actually will we still haven't done. Right. The, the, uh, and actually, it's great to see Roman from uh, LGA Waste Management here tonight. So, uh, but it was about being a catalyst, I guess, for change, really. We, we did things like uh, community awareness, rugby for all, pitch up and play. And it was about celebrating things that are great about rugby, about the game that we love, and to just get people involved and to look at getting more people playing, whether it's kids, whether it's seniors, and getting more money in so we could not be wheeling out terrible temporary floodlights, but have the beautiful ones that are on display now. And what effect did that have overall? I think in terms of minis, we have minis and juniors, we have uh, nearly 400 kids actually involved, which is tremendous. We, one of the first things we did with uh, Rugby Force on the day that we all came down was we had uh, this pitch up and play for women. Uh, we didn't have a women's team at the time. And now we have a women's team that's challenging for a promotion in the first year. There should be a cheer for this, by the way. In the first year, the very first year that they have been playing in a league, which is incredible. Uh, we have a senior side coached uh, by the wonderful Hannah, who are also going for a promotion. Uh, three games away and we may do it. So it was just wonderful on the field and off field, as I say, having these floodlights, which enables us to do more training, gives greater capacity and just keep kids like the ones there uh, excited and involved in the beautiful game. Yeah, how long have you been involved with the minis? Oh, bloody, uh, a long time. Um, I started with a team when I was about 17 or so. They were under 11, so God, 22 years is the truth of it. <laughs> How many, can you remember how many kids used to come down in the beginning? It was sparse, is the best way to put it. We struggled to get consistent teams out, um, always scratching around, getting on the phone to school teachers locally. Have you got anyone you can lend? Just get someone here for that weekend. Um, used to juggle kickoff times to try and give them the option to be available. Things have changed, and they've changed so much more positively. And now it's almost an issue of how are we going to get all these kids again? Um, it's, we're in a fantastic situation. It was interesting because I remember having a bit of a Twitter spat where I think it was James Haskell, um, so it wasn't too difficult. Um, and um, <laughs> it was about Surrey, and Surrey had said, we're not going to, at the tournament, we're not going to make a big fanfare about the winners and what have you. And people were saying, it's terrible, it's ridiculous, not allowed to win anymore. And I just made the point, actually, that one of the problems with these things is if you make winning such a big thing you get teams who just have two lads who are bigger and faster than everyone else yes. especially you know eights nines elevens when it makes a big difference yes yep. they run over everybody no one gets a pass no one gets it when they get bigger they're not gonna be any good because they won't be able to do that everyone else gets hacked off and never get the ball yep. you know it encourages bad rugby they don't pass the ball enough and i said actually i agree with that um later on and i was also saying if you're ultra competitive no one can coach that out of you. But I can't, you can coach out enjoyment if you don't get the ball and you're being run over. And the very small subplot to that is, trust me, all the kids do all the maths and knows one anyway. Exactly. So I don't get sort of young... It was it Cruyff, who, the way he changed Barcelona, took it away. I said, I don't care about winning. Mm. It's, uh, I care about how we play the game. And I, I was one of those converts who initially saw a turn up with Rocco and Arch at junior festivals and go, so when's the prize giving? Oh no, we don't have a prize giving. We just finished. Oh, that's. And it just took a bit of time for mine to get around it. And now it doesn't make a, uh, a hoot who, no. who, who wins or who has the best team. Actually, ball in play, ball in hand. 
I think the RFU should be applauded for how they've uh, adopted the, the, the policies and the, and the rules at junior level. You want everyone to enjoy it and not just watching two kids and winning, because that won't always work. Both my eldest daughters played mini rugby. My 10-year-old uh, still turns out for Wimbledon Warriors. And I remember when I went down the first time with my eldest and just thought, he's under eight then. And I just thought, I hope the coach is good. I don't want to say anything. And the only time I've ever said anything from the touchline, <laughs> and the referee came across and said, what are you... I said, sorry, sir, I've got to tell you, you're pointing the wrong way for penalties. It's confusing. <laughs> I don't want to... You know, I'm not saying the wrong penalties, you're just pointing the wrong way. Yeah. One of the coaches... You're thrown out of the club and never told to. <laughs> <laughs> One of the Richmond coaches, I don't know, Richmond also, but under eight, said... He said, you know what, one Sunday morning, I, I, I said I couldn't take it. On the touchline, I had Delalio, Leonard Liner. and Liner. Yeah. And he said, I'm sorry, boys, you're going to have to leave. There's too much pressure. I just, it's not your fault. I know your kids are playing, but I just, you know, the, the wealth of caps and so on. I feel like you're judging everything. Well, not, but I feel like it. Do you get... Have you got a shortage? Have you got enough volunteers to coach, to referee, to, to ferry people around? We are very fortunate at the moment in the club. I think we're at 48 youth coaches, youth mini coaches. Um, in amongst the spectrum of all the age groups. Um, and we have some fantastic people in office. So our safeguarding officer, Erica, is diligence personified. Um, Neil is a really, really good youth and mini chair. Um, very active, very engaging with all the age groups. Um, so refereeing is something we could do more of. We find the coaches referee a lot of the fixtures, so we don't get a chance to actually coach the kids we, or... But then, similarly, it should be player-led. They should be making their own decisions. They don't need us to bark at them to pass or to run because they need to make their own calls when they play. Our interjection should be at half-time and at the end of the game as a review. However, there are times when the volume needs to race because... Could, could I ask one tri very, very trivial point? It's always, um, do a lot... What percentage of those 48 coaches have boots that are above the ankle? Uh, uh, shorts that they last wore in 1978 yeah. and tops that fitted them when they were far svelter in their youth because if it's anything like Maidenhead it's like oh my god lads get some new boots and change some kit would you yeah. have, I, have you seen Jamie yeah <laughs> image is everything so I've always had a good image um, I would say in terms of actually playing coaches we probably have five or six that do lace their boots up on a regular occurrence um, and are actively involved throughout multiple levels of the club one of the biggest problems is, and I know clubs that have very, very good, well-organised and well-attended uh, mini-sections and junior sections, is the retention of, of kids from the age group stuff into adult rugby. Mm. For various reasons, girls being one of them, university, uh, going away for jobs and stuff like that. And the conversion rate is very small, but if it could be changed even a few percent, it would mean quite a lot for clubs. What, what, either of you, can you see that changing? If so, how? It's an aspiration thing. Um, every kid wants to play for England. Every kid around this way, 90% of them, truthfully, want to play for Saracens, and they aspire to be at this wonderful level. Um, the truth of it is it's not going to happen. Um, what we, or something we've worked towards, is building this aspirational thing to play at your club. If your heroes are your own local first team and your own local first team engage with those children, you get this one club theory. And if everyone buys in and everybody loves everyone and we all work together, 
those children will aspire to be out there in black and white. And if they do that, there's nothing better. Go on, the Crows. Absolutely. Go on, the Crows. I tell you, and I... Do you have a call? Um, Not quite as good as that, I'm afraid. Um, Yeah, we've got a number. I think, you know, on occasions we can look and 80% of our first team out there have come through the youth section. And that's just phenomenal. That's a lot higher than than the average, isn't it? It is a shame that it's not a year-on-year thing. Each year we probably get two or three progressed through. And university happens and we're in a commuter belt. People have the aspiration to go earn the money in the city. Fortunately, we're very fortunate. And a lot of guys who go and do the city thing, they've bought into the club. They love the club. And they travel back from the city to Royston on the train at their own expense to train with us and to play with us. Given that rugby is competing, as Will said, with every other sport. Uh, They've all, to a greater or lesser extent, now got development uh, people in schools or in the community. Uh, You've got the challenges of video games, phone games, which we didn't have, but they are ubiquitous and there's nothing you can do about that because they're going to be involved with those. How do you sell rugby to the kids when they come down? It was uh, the mayor of Royston is here. Today. Oh, yes. And uh, she was having a... She, welcome, Mayor. She was having a, a natter with some of the, the kids who, who play. And she asked that question in terms of why, why do you do this? And there is something about the rough and tumble and the getting involved and just running about with your mates and having fun. And I think there is something addictive about that, that actually if you build up this team spirit, it's more addictive than the PlayStations or, or the iPads. Um, and you see it on a Sunday morning here, if you drive past here on a Sunday morning, hundreds of kids that are there that are playing and they turn up, whether it's wet, whatever the weather, because they love it. And all the best photos are of kids hugging each other, covered yeah. in mud. Everyone loves that shot. So let's get that shot. Let's encourage it. Yeah. If it's the club's first time taking part with the NatWest Rugby Force, what's the simplest thing they can do that will make a big impact? I think celebrate the game. Don't just look at it as how we're going to paint our dressing rooms or fix the plumbing. Look at what's great about the game. Get the community involved, have pitch up and plays, and just look at how you can get more people involved and celebrate the beauty of rugby. Mick, Jamie, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just one thing on that, whether we're listening or not, is the is the dedication of the junior coaches oh. is something that is so undervalued by uh, people outside of rugby clubs. I mean, I I go with my lads down to the club, and sometimes you know I, I do bite my tongue because I'm not quite sure what they're being told to do or why on earth they're doing a particular drill or standard. But the one thing you could never ever say a, a bad word about it, is the levels of commitment and dedication from the men and women at junior rugby clubs up and down the country every Sunday. Car park duties on rotation between age groups, litter duty on rotation, behind the bar. There's always someone sticking their hand up going, no job's too smelly or horrible for me to do. And, um, and, and that's why it's always such a pleasure to come to a club like Royston or, or remember uh, Preston Grasshopper's early days on the back pitch. I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to wrap that up. Thank you for coming. Thank you to Royston for hosting us. Thank you for listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association 
with The Telegraph and NatWest. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast because it's free after all, and that way you'll never miss an episode. Thank you very much to my co-host, Will Greenwood, Royston Rugby Club again, and to my producer, as always, Abby Patterson. I'll be back next week with Rob Andrew. Um, But for now, goodbye.